Hello and welcome to the Grand Slam Tennis Podcast. is a writer, journalist and filmmaker. He was a documentary director for the BBC for 25 years. He's also played tennis since he was 12 years old and recently published A People's History of Tennis with Pluto Press. Through the histories of the sports clubs and players, David's book sets out to show that beneath its establishment image, tennis is a surprisingly radical game. He argues that tennis has been a fulcrum for various social forces, many of them progressive, in Britain and beyond. From feminist protest and reform to new notions of masculinity to the sports emphasis on volunteering and community spirit. He also underlines those forces in tennis that have not been so inclusive. We're going to talk about the book and some of those histories today. David, welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. Hi, very pleasure to be uh, asked to come along. So there's been a bit of a uh, a resurgence in park tennis, of course. Tennis was one of the the first sports to to come out of lockdown, so to speak. That must have been quite pleasing for you. Yes, it was quite. It's quite extraordinary. Not just in park tennis, in um, in club tennis as well. I mean, my club has had something like two hundred new members in the last uh, a few weeks. And for those of us who have kind of played and watched tennis uh, in Britain over the years, with the sense that it's kind of on a gradual decline, I mean, this seems to be an incredible reverse. Um, there are other clubs I know they have waiting lists. They haven't had a waiting list, you know, for decades. So there is this kind of influx. And I don't think you can entirely, entirely kind of explain it by, by the fact that tennis was one of the first sports that was allowed in the lockdown. Sometimes it feels a bit like that there was something quite a bit elemental in terms of lockdown, in terms of going back to your family group or your, your uh, uh, and wanting to do things together. And tennis has always been a very good sport in which the family could play together, um, partly because it's always been very much a mixed sport, as I say in my book, and also because there's a sense of, you know, parents uh, instructing children and bringing children uh, along to parks and to clubs. So I think I think that kind of family basis of, of, of tennis has often been the kind of a appeal, really, in, in the last few weeks. But it's very nice, you know, for us tennis players who, you know, um, aren't used to in the sport being this popular. It's just... Uh, it's just kind of amazing. And what's intriguing, of course, is it's happened without any, any, any of the kind of uh, elite tennis uh, um, um, competitions going on at all. You know? So it's, it's kind of you know, quite strange, but very heartening. Yeah, because tennis, of course, in, in Britain only really exists for two weeks of the year for most people, doesn't it? And it offers two weeks. <laughs> true. Um, Four weeks, I think. Two weeks, two, weeks, two weeks watching Wimbledon and two weeks trying to play the game afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. So what was the inspiration to write the book? Well, I suppose there are a number of things, really. Um, I mean, on a personal level, I was, I've been making films for the BBC for a long time. Um, well, that's a long time. Um, but I was always um, one of, on the staff there, so I always made whatever films the corporation needed to be made. 
Uh, they weren't my own ideas at all, because by the time I had an idea, I was already allocated something else. Um, so I made a whole range of kind of uh, films about topics that I knew nothing about. You know, like my last films were about mathematics, which was not one of my specialisms. So when I kind of left the BBC, I kind of thought, it would be nice to do something that I really care about, that is actually my own kind of thing. And I looked around, and I thought, well, I've always played tennis, and I've always loved tennis. And um, maybe that's something I should start writing about. I did originally think I might make a film about it, but it's difficult making films about tennis. I mean, it's not an easy sport to, 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 to film on a grassroots level. And I was really interested in trying to capture the experience and the feel of what it was like to play tennis as, as well as to watch it. And then when I started looking at tennis and started reading about it, there was something else as well, which I'd always felt a kind of disjuncture in my life between my own kind of politics, which were always on the left, and various kind of forms of red, and tennis, which was seen as a game very markedly of the right. I mean, it was, you know, I know Tony Blair kind of played, but it was mainly kind of Tory kind of prime ministers that were known for their interests. And the atmosphere of Wimbledon was always that sense of kind of, um, you know, the slightly middle to upper middle class exclusionary kind of feel about the game. And yet somehow that also didn't kind of quite connect with me because I was always felt it was a much more democratic uh, a game of the people than its image, image, image kind of suggested. And that gave me the motive to see whether my instinct that tennis was a much more kind of progressive and radical game than its image suggests was actually true or not. Um, and when I started delving into the stories of tennis and the histories of tennis, I felt that was something that had been missed out on a lot in some, some of the other kind of work that's been done in this area. You know, tennis had uh, undeservedly developed a, a reputation of of conservatism, of elitism, of a kind of uh, a game that really, you know, was was for posh boys and girls, and not for kind of you know uh, people like me from working class backgrounds. Yeah, and you mentioned family at the at the start of the show as a kind of reason for tennis's revival. I guess it is a it's a sport of clubs first and foremost isn't it and that that comes through in the book a lot i I think in some ways it does certainly the you know one of the great kind of saviors of lawn tennis as a game um when after its first you know fashionable decade when everybody wanted to play it and then then they moved on to other sports we're talking about the 1890s now tennis started in uh um, uh, the mid mid 1870s um, and when, it, when all the fashionable folk moved on to other activities like golf and things, and tennis was left with the aficionados, I think it was the, the voluntary tennis clubs around the country in Britain uh, that really kept the game going, um, really importantly, and actually gave a template for, for other countries as well. So the, so the British Tennis Club has been really important uh, in that in that sense of preserving the game, from some some ways preserving the values of the game, even at the highest level now. On the other hand, you know today most people who play tennis play in public parks. They play on public tennis courts. You know, there's seven hundred fifty thousand people in Britain probably playing clubs, maybe maybe a bit more, and probably at least double that play on playing public parks. Most most people now you know go to tennis not through their families, but by going along to a local a local park and playing with their friends. Um, so I think that's important that we remember that really if, if narrowing something down like this is possible mm. what was the one thing 
that surprised you most when you were researching the book? <laughs> yes, I'm quite sure I can, 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 can imagine that really. I think it was, okay, I think it was Wimbledon itself. I mean, I still had an image of Wimbledon being, you know, quite kind of, how can I put this, um, that if I was going to locate kind of progressive politics and, and a, a, a radical approach to sport, uh, I didn't think I'd find it in Wimbledon. I, find, I think I'd find it elsewhere. And yet there are several things about Wimbledon that actually actually kind of surprise me. I mean, the first case is that um, a lot of the people originally uh, in the All England Club and certainly some of the original champions were quite, had quite radical politics. I mean, it was it's well known that the kind of wife of the runner-up uh, in 1878, um, I think the first championship, um, she was a very strong suffragette. You know, so, so she was very involved in kind of feminist politics. And uh, I think you can you can actually you know you can actually connect quite a lot of the uh, early enthusiasts with a kind of a more radical approach to politics. So that, that was that was intriguing. But I think one of the things I, I, I really liked was to discover that the Wimbledon crowd's enthusiasm. Uh, for the tennis champions, um, which wasn't necessarily connected with, you know, sort of cheering on the Brits, um, partly because there weren't very many Brits to cheer in the last, you know, few decades. I mean, they always had a sense of, uh, of, of connecting with the kind of stylish uh, underdogs, and that went back a long way. You know, to the 20s and uh, even even beyond that. And there was always that sense of, you know, the crowd really responding to individuals wherever they came from. Um, and I like that a lot, really. I do think that's something that kind of has been underappreciated. Now, of course, there are examples, you know, where people, say, from black, uh, uh, from black communities weren't as welcomed as, as kind of others. I mean, Althea Gibson was a classic. Um, and sometimes people have argued that um, the Wimbledon crowd always like certain kind of stylish players and they don't like that kind of forceful kind of desire to win. Although I quite like stylish players myself. But I don't think there's been the racism there that you've seen in other sports uh, in terms of appreciation. And certainly, you know, when Arthur Ashe kind of played in the 60s and 70s, he was loved by the crowd. Um, and I think the Williams sisters have actually been really appreciated in Wimbledon, perhaps more so than in, in, in other places. So the answer to your question really is, I think, that Wimbledon surprised me. Uh, I was expecting to find lots of other examples throughout the history of tennis, you know, where, you know, there were, you know, innovative practices like the socialist tennis clubs in the 1930s. But I was really surprised by Wimbledon itself. And interesting enough, you know, one of the really fun things to find out in the Wimbledon archive was that in 19, uh, after the war, the um, uh, Workers' Wimbledon Championships, which I write about in the book, um, in the 30s, it was actually the finals were actually featured in, on Wimbledon itself at the invitation of the All England Club. You can see the, the programme and the chair of the club actually went down and gave out the prizes to all these radical socialists. And I quite like that. Yeah, I was very surprised when I read that. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty damn hard to get any matches apart from Wimbledon on the passports, isn't it? It's true. I think there always, there always is a sense of the All England Club as a very pragmatic club. It was always kind of watching, kind of uh, 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 you know. Firstly, it was set up. Um, it took up it took up tennis because there's always a croquet club, and it took up tennis because it actually was losing money, <laughs> and so it saw saw the new game of tennis as a way of actually subsidising the croquet. 
Um, but it always had its eye on, on kind of, you know, what the main chance would be, really, you know, what, what the possibilities were. Um, it introduced uh, women's tennis uh, in, 19, in 1883 because another club at the time, the London Athletic Club, were about to introduce a women's championship. And Wimbledon kind of thought, well, we can't let, let them get the crowds. We better, we better kind of, um, you know, bring women into the championships. And certainly when introduced, uh, you know, when it, when it uh, in 1967, I think, 60, yeah, 67, introduced pro tennis, it, it basically told the rest of the kind of uh, tennis world that they were, you know, that it was, they were going, women was going to introduce professional tennis and they didn't care less what the others thought, really. And I, I like that sort of innovative approach of the Wimbledon Club, which often doesn't, the All England Club, which doesn't get kind of appreciated enough, really, because underneath, you know, the, the way they've also kept that style in the last 50 years of completely, completely fallacious style of a kind of, you know, sort of country club or so, even though this is a sort of a sport that is actually making millions and millions of pounds. But these things have kept that veneer very well indeed. And, and, and it could have been a lot worse, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that, 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 you know, I, was, I was really pleasantly surprised, really. I didn't think they'd come out as one of the, the heroes of the book. I thought they'd come out as one of the villains, but, but they didn't. <laughs> Last week, I, I interviewed the great niece of Nora Gordon Clever, actually. Who's oh, yes. Booked, yeah, yeah. And I've, I've just I, I read her book as well for that podcast. And she describes Wimbledon when she goes as a schoolgirl in 1917 as a, a vicarage tea party. Yes. It definitely still has that, that atmosphere. It was, yes, but, yes. Um, I think Nora Cleaver's book is a great book. I mean, it really is. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. Extraordinary kind of... Um, um, examples of kind of how they had to, um, you know, sort of pay people through, pay the amateurs um, uh, ways of actually kind of, you know, sort of keeping them on board, really. Um, it must have been really difficult at the time, actually, to be honest. You know, there's, um, you know, it was, a, it was kind of a ridiculous argument. Um, but for the, for the clubs that had to, you know, the All England Club and the Championships, they had to keep you know, the best players um, coming along and, and yet still kind of uphold this ridiculous amateur ethos. Well, we'll, well, we'll get on to that later. Sure. You've, got, you've got some really interesting thoughts in the book about professionalisation mm. of the game and stuff. And mm. as you say, yeah, the amateur, the kind of gentleman amateur bubble remains mm. strong, doesn't it, for so long in, in, in this history. Mm. Um, but in terms of women's tennis... I found it interesting that you point out from the, the very first packaging of Walter Wingfield's lawn tennis set. So he's this kind of mercurial inventor, isn't he, who first comes up with the lawn tennis set. And he featured women on the packaging, the very first packaging, that being kind of actively encouraged to play from the foundation of the game, haven't they? And yes. that has made for a higher level of gender equality, arguably, than other sports, at least. And you, you describe the first female tennis players is kind of the first sporting feminist as well. And one of them is Lottie Dodd. Uh, yes. I wonder if you could tell us more about her importance and a figure that I'm not sure many people are familiar with. Yes. I mean, she's, I think she's in the Guinness book of records as the most successful British sportswoman ever. I mean, but um, I don't think very many people actually read the Guinness book of records these days. It's not, not tennis players. Um, she was kind of an extraordinary figure. I mean, she was the sort of daughter of, a, of, a, of an industrialist in, um, in, in, in uh, what is now Birkenhead, but was just outside kind of, um, you know, the, it was in the village of Edgeworth, I think it was called. Um, 
And she grew up like a lot of those kind of late Victorian, you know, rather privileged kind of children. Um, she used to, they had um, some of the early tennis courts uh, were put up in their garden. And she played with her brothers, really, and uh, wanted very much to keep up with her brothers at a time when actually girls were giving more and more opportunities to play, uh, uh, especially in terms of the you know, development of the girls' public schools and things. So it was, it was seen in late Victorian times that girls could do a bit more than, than certainly kind of uh, a few decades before. So she became quite good at tennis playing with her brothers and then she started going into uh, um, the championships that had grown up at that time. There was tournaments around and she just beat everybody. She was known as a little wonder, an extraordinary player. And what was good about her was that the previous kind of women championships, like Maud Watson, have been very consistent, almost like the Chrissy Evert of the day, <laughs> uh, very formidable. Um, and when Lottie Dodd came, that she she just basically hit the ball much much harder. She was a very fierce kind of uh, 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 young woman, and really felt that um, you know um, women should stop patsing around, really <laughs> stop getting the ball back, and really go for winners. Um, and she and she just kind of, you know, destroyed the opposition. Uh, I think um, she only lost five times um, from when she played. I think she was about when she started. She was about um, uh, fifteen or sixteen when she started winning championships, maybe fourteen. Uh, and then so she, she retired at twenty-one. She only lost five times. But what was more important was she she the, the way she played and her outspokenness in which taking on kind of men at a time when it. There were some possibilities that tennis might split into a men's game and a women's game. Um, and one of the arguments that the men uh, put forward who wanted this was that uh, it was just too hard a physical contest for women to play. Remember, you had those, those big wooden rackets, they're heavy. <laughs> um, and actually, they felt um, at, at the time that it would be better for women <laughs> to play with a softer, uh, a smaller racket and a smaller court uh, and, and uh, even softer balls um, and different rules. And the men disguised this as a sort of sense of, uh, or put this across as this was, in, you know, for for the protection of, of women, um, because that's that's the kind of that's the kind of tennis they would be able to sort of cope with, or so. Um, but in reality, they wanted to you know they wanted to keep the game to themselves and um, not have to sort of um, you know sort of um, um, share it with women. This is only only certain men wanted this, but they were a particularly powerful force at the time. Uh, and Lottie Dodd just confounded all that. I mean, she just hit the ball as hard as most men. Uh, she sort of took t- took uh, 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 men on and, and beat them. Uh, but she was also pretty hard on women as well. She told women to start patsing around, that they had to start being really athletic and, you know, and, uh, you know take the game seriously or so. And in all those ways, you know, she stopped... Uh, her and her and the other women champions stopped stopped the women's game going off onto a separate sphere, which would have destroyed it. Um, but she also gave a strong role model for kind of young women uh, that they could play a physical game uh, like tennis. Um, and you know, she also found ways of getting around the dress codes so that uh, she could you know, have more freedom on the court. So there are lots of really strong reasons why 
she was one of the uh, sporting feminists. Although I think in her, well, her personal politics were quite radical as well. She kind of went um, volunteered to in the Spanish Civil War on the Republican side, and so she always had a sort of, um, um, I think, a, a inclination towards the left. <laughs> um, and finally, I suppose, and I think this is very important. Uh, she remained unmarried all her life. And that wasn't necessarily unusual for women of her time, particularly the fact that a lot of men kind of were killed in the First World War. But there was something, and she was always very close to her brothers, but there was something about that, that status in which she was not dependent on men. Uh, she had enough money from her father to live, to live in, you know, without having to work, although she did volunteer as a nurse. And that, that independence uh, from men, I think, allowed her to be really quite forceful and, not, and, and take on men when she needed to. And I think that was a, a very powerful model for uh, women tennis players after that, like, for example, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. Uh, I'm not sure about um, the sexuality of, 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 of Lottie on the side. She was always very celibate. I suspect there was, there was a sexuality that, that, that was not dissimilar to Billie Jean King and Martina Hedgeford. And that's why I think though, she was very important in the game. Yeah. And just a few more things about Lottie Dodd. She uh, she did a, a Battle of the Sexes match, as you mentioned. Yes. Ernest Renshaw, didn't she, in, in 1888. So uh, kind of foreshadowing the Riggs Billie Jean King match of course and although she doesn't win she acquits herself very well doesn't she and as you say she's kind of forcing a change of attitude isn't she she's kind of making people like Herbert Chip who is very out yes, of his game yeah. he's make, making him look ridiculous really isn't she I think she did yeah yeah I mean the, uh, the battle of the sets that she played it wasn't an equivalent of Billie Jean King playing Bobby Riggs, who after all was 30 years older. Uh, she yeah. played Ernest Renshaw, who was her own age. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit like, you know, um, Billie Jean King playing John Newcomb or something like that. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I mean, she was, it was a handicap game. I think she was given, I think, uh, one or two points every game. Um, but still, she pushed Ernest around from court, uh, you know, just as much as any man would have done. Um, and I think that that was a you know the, for the first uh, of those kind of indications that tennis is a game that women and men can play against each other, and only at the very elite level does the difference of physicality start mattering a lot. Really, uh, uh, I mean, in my own club, we have a singles um, now. I think there's you know, thirty leagues, uh, and women uh, play it just as much as men. I, um, and um, there's no kind of distinction. It's not a, not a female league and a male league. It's just, um, you know, sort of it's a singles kind of league for everybody, really. And that's, that's an, an interesting indication, I think, in, in, in tennis. That's only when you get to the, the top levels, the, the standards between men and women start bearing. Really. And she didn't really mince her words as well in a, in a chapter for a popular Heathcote Brothers anthology. She... Mm-hmm. Uh, she well basically calls uh, Herbert Chip a, an irresponsible despot, yeah. <laughs> which is which I like. Um, I'm, I'm interested by this recurring balance in the book that keeps on coming up between women's dress being a kind of mode of liberation. So we're talking about uh, Lottie Dodd there; she was kind of mm. trimming an inch off the back of her dress so she wasn't fall over. Mm. Very marginal gains, <laughs> really, um, in today's kind of lens. But um, yeah. and then you mentioned Billie Jean King's dress, the Battle of the Sexes. Mm. But then it's also a kind of another form 
I guess there's the common phrase in there, the male gaze is another form of oppression in a sense. And I think Suzanne Longland is a really interesting figure in that, isn't she? Yes, it's, it is a contradiction, I think. Uh, I mean, the contradiction that Billie Jean King herself, you know, is a very strong kind of feminist, uh, a very strong feminist. And yet she uh, also kind of defended, um, you know, in the original Virginia Slims tour, uh, she defended the, uh, the women players kind of um, looking attractive and looking sexy. Uh, and it's... Um, and yet, yet Billie Jean sort of was, you know, she described Lottie Dodd as her sort of uh, kindred soul, you know, so she, she saw her links, you know, back there with Lottie. And of course, you know, she was very strong kind of lesbian and, you know, um, in sports. So she wasn't necessarily, she wasn't, uh, she was away from the male gaze in that sense, in terms of her own kind of politics. I think what they, what, what, what they, what they're getting, and what I realised in the book is that tennis is about performance. Uh, it is about theatricality as a sport, and it always has been. Uh, it always has a sense of kind of looking, looking attractive and looking, looking pretty. And even the sort of, you know, even the male tennis players, the young male uh, tennis players when they started, you know, there was a sense of kind of uh, um, dressing well uh, and, and being seen as kind of, um, you know, stars. I suppose, and stars, we always want our stars to look beautiful and to look attractive. You know, that, that does mean kind of, you know, dressing in an interesting way for people. It's not all, not all the stars do this at all. Um, but certainly the kind of top stars have had, had a feeling that they, that they are, are going to be watched and admired uh, as much as, you know, in terms of how their looks as much as they but uh, their style. And so that's linked in with kind of, you know, exploiting masculinity or exploiting femininity in, in that kind of way because, you know, that's, the, that's, that's one of the things that people like. Certainly, it's, 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 certainly it was true with Suzanne Langland. It was the, you know, she dressed as much for women as she did for men. I mean, her, the way she, uh, the, the sort of clothes she chose from, you know, the, the famous Parisian designers and the way she looked, you know, was it was kind of women that kind of uh, love looking just as much as men. So there's always been that that thing through uh, uh, through tennis. Uh, and when it wasn't there, I think in the third, in, in, in after the war, there's a feeling of drabness. I think if you look at the American kind of um, players in the in the late forties or so, um, which were wearing shorts and just looking very much like a man, uh, it just felt a bit kind of dull, really. Um, I think so. <laughs> Yes, it is a tricky one because there's no doubt that sort of some of the female kind of tennis players have have kind of traded on their looks um, in a in a kind of quite traditional way, like a, like Kornikova and women like that. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, you know, it, there is a, there is that that's been right of it through part of tennis right from the start. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, now um, how Nadal looks, how Federer looks—not perhaps Murray and Djokovic, but some of the, some of the some of the kind of top male players, the sexiness of them and the kind of attractiveness of them is a very important part in terms of you know their their appreciation by the public. I think that's 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 true of now of the men just as much as the women. Yeah, absolutely, and I find. It, fascinating you you argue as well that tennis at the same time was remodeling codes of masculinity and it kind of always has um and that it's it, its nature as a mixed sport was kind of in its dna because 
mm. the men needed the women as much as the women needed the men in, in a sense from the sports inception just explain that for us because it's a really fascinating idea yeah so a number of things about that really i mean firstly as i as we've said um tennis was always a mixed sport uh, right from the start, when uh, Walter Wingfield in, invented the game in 1873, uh, he men. He aimed it squarely at men and women. It was going to be a sport that would be played on the lawns of, um, on vicarages and country houses around Britain uh, by uh, 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 as an afternoon entertainment for men and women. It wasn't going to be a separate kind of activity for men. Um, and that was very important. It gave us a style for the game. But also the people that came into the game when it became popular, these sort of, um, you know, um, uh, the people that made, made the game their own, the, the, uh, the male professional classes of the time. The people that played tennis, the men that played tennis, were the people that actually who enjoyed playing with women. Um, and that was unusual. I mean, there were sports like cricket, uh, particularly, um, you know, it was just very much a male-only sport. Um, and so the men that actually chose to make lawn tennis their game accepted that they would play with women, and in fact thoroughly enjoyed playing with women. Um, and that gave that, um, that gave it a different style. And it, and it also meant certain di- uh, kinds of men played it, not others. And those are the men that enjoy the company of women. Now, it also, because you know, at, at the time, and even this lasted a very long time, there was a sense of tennis as an effeminate game for men. Uh, and certainly the cricketers of the time regarded it playing with a softball as kind of, you know, a sign of, of kind of uh, uh, foppiness or weakness or so. Uh, and there's no doubt that actually having women there on court, in some ways, um, actually sort of was a, was a safeguard against a sort of rampant uh, homosexuality. They wouldn't be called homosexuality at the time. They were, because the women were around, they actually sort of uh, reinforced the sense that they were still sort of heterosexual men. <laughs> I'm sure the men and the women contributed in that way um, to the uh, uh, to the sort of uh, safety of men that they weren't it wasn't all kind of a sort of um, um, a sort of a cover for strange homosexual practices going on um, I think I think that was that became part of kind of tennis as well really but in, in the main it was actually you know the the men that played it were men that enjoyed sharing their, their sport with women that was very important there were different kinds which were kind of different kinds of masculine behavior um, you couldn't go away with the kind of rugby scrum behaviour or the 19th hole behaviour because uh, you always had women there and that, 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 that allowed a certain kind of etiquette and culture which was quite different for tennis uh, a different way of performing masculinity A lot of people are kind of perturbed by the fact and you, you acknowledge this in the book by the absence of a single openly gay male player in the top 500 right now of course um, but you suggest that might be the wrong lens is it because of this kind of big picture then maybe or it's like there's another way of looking at it then there is this also this remodeling of masculinity going on yes uh, it is a kind of you know i think i think we all have to accept that it is a bit unfortunate really mm. uh, tennis is not alone in this um but um it does seem to be a reticence for some of the kind of top male players who are gay or have a homosexual identity not to be not to be open about that. Um, that is a great shame. I mean, there's been you know two or three um, 
um, male players have come out after they after they left the professional game, and they they say it was to do with the kind of locker room culture that actually kind of um, there would been far too much teasing going on or ragging going on, and it would have been you know very very difficult for them at a time when they're under enormous stress. And there's no doubt, sort of trying to survive as a top professional, uh, as a professional in the top 200 or top 400, there's so many other things going on that the last thing you want to actually uh, have to cope with is being, you know, sort of uh, teased or put down by your kind of sexual preference. I suspect that isn't anywhere near much true as it was really. And I, uh, so I think in that sense it would be a matter of time. I think in the end I was more interested in the kind of, um, not that there weren't any you know, openly men, gay men in the in, in the top 500. But how safe uh, the sport was felt towards gay men, and there's no doubt that when you go down into the into into club and park tennis, it is a sport that gay men feel very much uh, is a sport that they can play. Uh, and enjoy and and still be open about their sexuality. Uh, and that actually, when you look back over the 150 years of tennis, the influence of gay male culture, I think, has been quite strong in tennis. You know, you, even determinately heterosexual players like Roger Federer and, and, and Nadal are also slightly camp in their behaviour. There's a slight element of sort of, you know, uh, a kind of teasingness and things, which you wouldn't get in, in, in many other sports. And I think that's because of that, that culture that has spread down uh, of performance and kind of uh, fun and, uh, and kind of uh, uh, teasingness, which, which I think uh, gay male culture in particular um, has always had, really. As for the influence of lesbian women, I mean, we all know that. So that's, that's been a really positive and interesting thing throughout the history of tennis. And it, yeah, as you say, it continues to be... Uh... Yeah be a big influence doesn't it with the, the gay and te- uh, lesbian tennis alliance as you point out that has yeah. ten thousand or so members around the world that are, yeah. um, and just very quickly because i i'm mindful of the time but um sure. i really wanted to address the, this figure Rene richards who i didn't <laughs> know about tell, tell yeah. us a little bit about about her the original the original kind of um, um sort of transgender sports player um, yeah, so Richard Raskind, um, I think is, is my name. And he was, um, he was a kind of a good tennis player, um, but not a, a top player. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, he was also, like many of the amateur players of the time, uh, I think it was just, just, just in the end of amateurism or just the start of professionalism. The start of professionalism. He was also a trained doctor. Um, people, you know, he was, he just, he, he, he wanted to play full-time tennis, but he was also a qualified doctor as well. The most important thing for him, I think, as he, as he grew older, uh, wasn't his doctoring or his tennis, but he felt that he was in the wrong identity and eventually he did kind of transition from being uh, a, a male player, a, a man to a woman, and, and renamed himself as Rennie Richards. And then started playing in competitions and found he was actually quite good as a woman. He was probably better as a woman than he was as a man. And that caused an uh, immense kerfuffle uh, uh, at the time. But I think in the end, he was allowed to play. He was, she was allowed to play in the US Open. Um, and I think she got to the, the finals of the doubles or so. Um, she did say later that she probably would have done a lot better 
um, as, a, as a female player if she transitioned early. She, she only became female um, when she was in her early 40s. Um, so that's, you know, that's an indication. She said if she'd done it 10 or 20 years earlier, she would have been uh, uh, much more successful. And that, I think that would have caused some, um, lots of arguments, and lots of, uh, as we're finding out in other areas of sport now. Um, but for some reason, because she was, this was, it was 1970s and 1980s, uh, she had a reasonably successful career and then she became a coach. She was a coach to Martina Nafarosleva for, for a while and then went back to being a doctor. Um, and things. Um, I think it's kind of passed tennis by a little bit, really, because it's, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a, uh, an, a top a top player who's been who's tra- been uh, a, a transgender since then, really. Hey, and yeah, fascinating that she was Martina Navratilova's coach, of course. Yeah, she did say in the end in one of her interviews. She doesn't give very many interviews. There have been a couple of documentaries about her, but she doesn't doesn't give very many interviews. She did say she felt it was unfair. She had an unfair advantage. Didn't she? Yeah, in 2012, um, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was an interesting kind of uh, comment. But um, fortunately, in some ways, given how much it's kind of you know really had a big effect on athletics uh, and and other sports. Um, there hasn't been the controversies around transgender in tennis, although, you know, we expect there might be in the next few years. Of course, a recurring theme of the book is is class. And as you were addressing yes. it, you're, you're from a working class background. So this was almost a kind of personal figuring out, wasn't it, I guess, of your, of your like, yes. sport, maybe. Um, yes, I think that's true. There's no doubt that joining the tennis club was a passport for me into the middle classes. <laughs> uh, and tennis has always been um, played, uh, you know, mainly by middle class people. Although uh, there's some argument that the people, that the representation uh, of, uh, of, of, of people playing tennis is, is, the, is about, is similar to the representation of people in Britain generally. Um, you know, because most people, you know, in fact, are, 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 probably will see themselves as middle class in Britain these days. Tennis has always been also a lower middle class sport, not an upper middle class sport. And the lower middle classes are probably the, the largest group or so. Uh, but there's no doubt that the work, working class people and people from, you know, sort of non-conventional backgrounds have felt that tennis isn't, hasn't been quite their game or so. Um, in the same way that I think boys, perhaps girls as well, from middle class backgrounds haven't felt that football is their game. Um, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, you can play professional football if you're from a, a middle class background, but you have to somehow take on the ethos yeah. of, of, of kind of the street. And in some ways, the same with tennis, you know, um, to, you can, there's no really, there's no discrimination or exclusion from people from working class backgrounds. It's just that many just don't, uh, you know, uh, don't take up the sport. Um, and if they did, they'd probably have to take on some of that middle class kind of culture and ways of being in the world to, to you know, survive, particularly in the clubs or so. Um, so in some ways, in some ways, they're a mirror image of themselves, football and tennis in that, in that respect. And there's one player who I was surprised to find kind of struggled at that intersection a little bit was Fred Perry. Yeah. More about his, his background. So I don't think a lot of people know this, do they? That he, he kind of had a bit of a struggle adapting to that middle-class culture and because every season is the golden boy of Wimbledon, don't they? Yes. Oh, well, he was, um, you know, he, he wasn't the golden boy of Wimbledon for a long time when he was turned professional uh, and he was cast out. Um, and he always, 
It's difficult to disentangle Perry. Lots of, there are lots of writers who have written a lot more about Perry than, than I have. But um, there was a kind of character about him which was really quite difficult. He's always had a sense of a chip on his shoulder. Uh, and I put it down to... Uh, he was... <laughs> He was from a working-class family, but by the time that he was growing up, his, his father had kind of moved into the sort of higher echelons of the labour movement. He was, he, he was, I think, secretary of the cooperative movement and you know, living in Ealing. And in all respects, you know, uh, uh, Fred Perry had a, a conventional kind of London middle-class kind of upbringing, really. Um, but there was, there, was, there was always a sense that because he was part of the aristocracy of labour, he was not going to defer to anybody. And when people started, I think there was some, some famous examples in which he was seen as a grammar school boy, not a public school boy or so. Uh, you know, that, that, that chippiness came out. I mean, it gave him a strong sense of, uh, you know, wanting to win all the time. And again, that wanting to win wasn't seen as the kind of, you know, right kind of attitude. Um, you know, I think the, the British have always liked their kind of tennis players to be stylish and kind of, you know, sort of slightly, slightly modest rather than sort of aggressively going out to, to, to kind of win at any costs, uh, which the Americans have always much appreciated. So you know, it was just slightly surprising that Perry, after he'd won three Wongdons, headed off to Hollywood and played his tennis in America, really. And that's where he made his, his name or so. Um, but a contradictory character, certainly. And in the 1930s as well, there's a, one of the, one of the most fascinating chapters is uh, the socialist chapter. And yes. it's about these these clubs that were springing up in the 30s, um, including the workers Wimbledon as well. Yes. Um, how, did, how did that exactly happen from the backdrop of all these private establishments that were kind of very firmly padlocked against... Um, yes. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the club structure was always more kind of... Um, always more complicated than, than it came across, even in the 1920s. There were, you know, sort of a wide range of tennis clubs, um, and some of which, you know, were quite happy to accept anybody. And that always was true. Um, but certainly the top clubs at the time were focused on a battle going on in, inside the middle class, which was around the battle between kind of the, you know, sort of um, upper middle class and, and the lower middle class release. Um, there were lots of clubs at the time that wouldn't accept anybody that worked in trade. You know, business people were rather frowned upon as opposed to, you know, sort of doctors and, and lawyers and all those kind of things. And that, that internal middle class battle was going on in, 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 in clubs at the time. Um, and so people from outside the middle classes, people from, from working class backgrounds, did feel excluded, there's no doubt. And some, in some, some cases they were excluded. At the same time, there was a revival going along in terms of Labour Party kind of politics, in which um, the Labour Party was getting involved in a wide range of cultural things, uh, particularly uh, in sports. Um, they started sort of sports clubs, and tennis became part of that, really. Um, and in various of the of the Labour Party uh, sports clubs, they formed tennis sections, and they became tennis clubs in themselves. Partly because they felt the clubs in the town, the other tennis clubs in the town, weren't really that open to people that worked in in, in those sort of traditional manual occupations. And partly because actually they liked playing with them, and they didn't like playing with their own comrades. Really, it was part of their politics. So they did grow up this wide range of kind of socialist tennis clubs 
there were also kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, minors leagues and things like that, tennis clubs, um, tennis leagues, you know, for, for minors and for, uh, and the post office workers and things. So there was a really, a really widespread kind of um, uh, interest in the game amongst, amongst world-class people in the 20s and 30s, which led to this tournament called Workers' Wimbledon, in which... Uh, anybody could enter, but you had to be a member of a trade union um, or a kind of um, uh, or, a, or a socialist tennis club, you know, uh, as long as you're a member of those. Um, and it became a kind of um, a, a tournament for uh, as an alternative to Wimbledon in lots of ways uh, for people. But also, as well as interesting, is it had a kind of ethos of generosity about it as well, <laughs> in which kind of people played because they enjoyed the comradeship of the, of the game. Um, and they weren't playing it for... The, the, uh, they, they were in contrast to the sort of developing professionalism of the, of, of the, of, of, of the proper world in which people were very much playing for money. So, so I quite like that kind of contrast there. I guess one of the, the pillars of your argument is that a kind of socialist politics or a kind of a strong sense of community and comradeship mm. is alive even in private tennis clubs in a way or member-owned tennis clubs, right? Because you talk a lot about the kind of making do or DIY attitude that a lot of tennis clubs have had in the 20th century. Yes. Uh, and you use the phrase anarchic generosity, which I love. Hmm. What, what did you exactly mean by that? I think there's something about um, there being there being kind of um, havens of of values which uh, you can't kind of um, uh, uh, um, turn into commodities, really. And I'm trying. I'm contrasting them with the sort of David Lloyd clubs, for example, which are sort of commercial operations. There's nothing wrong, of course, with David Lloyd clubs. They're really nice and good, great facilities. Um, but I don't think anybody can pretend they're kind of run, you know, by the members. They're not members-only kind of clubs. And so, you know, there's a sense in which you're buying something. You're buying a kind of game, ten- a, a, a game of tennis. You know, you're buying you to play with people that you want to play in the David Lloyd Club. Whereas in a voluntary tennis club, you part, you you're making it yourself. I mean, there is a you know, you, you you're organising the games yourself. You are connecting with people in somehow in a non-commercial way. Uh, and there's there's a there's a kind of that allows a certain sort of ethos, which was very common in Victorian times. That sort of voluntary club, uh, which is less less common now. In 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 most of the tennis clubs I know, um, it's frowned upon, for example, to actually talk about your work, you know, your your status outside the club. It doesn't matter a great deal, really. Um, you know, what matters far more is kind of what you can do inside the club. And, um, you know, how good a player you are or how likely you are to organise things for other people or so. You know, these are, these are values that, you, that aren't, aren't, you know, sort of the, the, the normal values that you get in the sort of capitalist society. And I like that a lot, really. And it also allows the flowering of a relationship which is quite unusual, really, which I would call the tennis partnership. I mean, you know, people will find partners they can play a sport with all their lives, really. Um, and that creates a certain kinds of bonds of friendship uh, around playing a sport, which is really quite unusual, uh, I think. You can get it in some other sports, but not to the intensity you get it in tennis. And people talk about their tennis partners in a really almost a romantic sense, you know, that somebody that they've played this game with all their lives and things. And then the affection that can develop between people, I think, is, is very kind of 
un, unremarked upon, but I think very, 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 very profound. You get, so I think it's another phrase, you get sort of the civilised pleasure of sharing, sharing kind of your life with strangers. And I think that's what happens in tennis clubs. I think, um, you know, at their best. <laughs> their best. Yeah. Inclusion and representation has been less forthcoming for ethnic minority players, hasn't it? It's yes. talked about in the book. And I, I actually interviewed Paul Jubb on, on Saturday, who's one of the rising yeah. stars in, in British tennis at the moment. Yeah. As a black working class guy, he's, sure. he's a distinct figure, um, sadly. So what, why has British tennis, you, you touched on this in, the, in, the, in one chapter, why has British tennis <laughs> failed where American and French tennis have had black stars? It's difficult to know, really, um, because certainly, you know, I don't think there's uh, now any kind of uh, uh, overt racism. Uh, I mean, if you're a black tennis player, um, you don't experience anywhere near as, like, as, as much racism as, as you might imagine. When you start talking to, I talked to several young, young players, and there was a little bit of kind of, you know, annoying. There were, there was, there were some examples in which racism still just about kind of percolates through, really. Um, but one of the, the big things they had was that there wasn't any role models for them in terms of kind of, you know, um, there weren't other black players playing, really. And in some ways, it's, that's a sort of cultural thing. Um, you know, that you don't, because... The, because the way forward in terms of British tennis, if you want to become good, is through the tennis clubs. You, you, it's just that there aren't very many other black players playing there. I mean, in London there are quite a lot, um, but it's not. It hasn't sort of developed a route, particularly in the Asian culture as well, as as to to allow kind of encourage people forward in the way that that it has in in America. I mean, I think I think the Williams sisters have been extraordinary in terms of forcing through a kind of cultural change. You know which uh, young black women in particular, uh, tennis players, are playing a lot more now. And that hasn't happened in Britain. Um, perhaps if, um, if, a, if a black player is successful, that might happen a bit, really. Uh, I think for, for black, young black men of, of, of sporting prowess, um, it's a lot easier to imagine, you know, becoming a professional footballer than a professional tennis player. And there are only about half a dozen at the most. Yeah, yeah. Like as you say, the, the the desire is there, isn't it? It's not yes. it's not that it's kind of a, um, a a particular preference for other sports, kind of just just in black culture. But there is well a recurring theme that you address is that a lot of tennis clubs. There's a lot of kind of sliding doors moments, isn't there, throughout history where tennis clubs have failed to be welcoming and inclusive to. Yes. Uh, people from different classes, different ethnicities. And yeah, I think it is, it is one of the, one of the tragedies of tennis that, that continues this day, doesn't it? In a way. Um, but yes, I think, I think that's right. I think it does. And there are clubs that go out and kind of, you know, try and do outreach as it's called. But it's quite a big thing having to do outreach if you're a voluntary club or so. Um, you know, um, you know, you're, you're, you're tent on survival really. <laughs> There's no doubt that the RTA, Long Tents Association, could have done a lot more in terms of um, really sort of um, uh, a spearheading kind of involvement. Um, and one of the classic things I think that, that would help and it, it black players, but it should be done anyway, is subsidising coaching in public parks. 
you know, there's a whole range. Tennis is a bloody difficult game to learn. Um, and it's, it's costly because, not because of the rackets and balls, but because really to get better, you have to have coaching. Uh, that's not true of kind of other sports in, 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 in that kind of way. And I think that if the RTA would um, had paid for one professional coach for free in every kind of you know proper public parks courts or so, a lot of those a lot of coaches uh, uh, in in the cities were black players, um, and that would have made a big difference. I think really, um, and it has made some difference in London. There is a particularly striking passage towards the end of the book about Philip Chatterjee's success as head yes. of the French Tennis Federation. And you, you mentioned that in the first 10 years, whatever, of his leadership, the number of people playing tennis in France tripled. Yes. There's, right now, there's over 7,500 clubs in France compared to just under 3,000 in Britain, 9,000 indoor courts compared to 1,500 in Britain. Do you th- I get the sense that you, you kind of there's a kind of underlying frustration maybe with the, the tennis setup in the, in this country yeah, probably I, I think they made the i think the perhaps are beginning to make right choices now mm. but in the last 30 years they've chosen to focus on uh, the elite making you know the the, the argument was that if you had Wimbledon champions that were british and that would that would percolate down um and I, I think that the French experience showed that actually the best thing to do to, to get more kind of top players is really to invest in the grassroots and to integrate uh, the sort of uh, uh, private tennis clubs and the kind of public park facilities or so, so that there was an easy kind of way in for all kinds of people interested in the game. I think I think that's what, given the millions that they get out of Wimbledon every year, uh, I think that they, they, a lot of that's been wasted on developing elite performance kind of uh, centres and, uh, and and you know you know you know concentrating on on the top players rather than actually spreading it right across the board and then allowing the best players to come out of that really yeah uh, that's a great shame really because it's, it's it's pretty straightforward you know and they could have done that and they haven't really uh, but now you know with the interest that's been shown um, in, in in the game now is perhaps the time when because there are lots of, you go around to the public parks, there's still lots of courts that are in pretty shoddy conditions and there isn't that easiness of getting kind of coaching, uh, uh, you know, sort of in the public parks. So there isn't that wel- welcoming. You know, because you can see in some, some London parks and other places, there, there is a complete change. You get a whole vibrant culture and you can get a sense of getting people involved. And uh, I think the RTA could have done a lot more and still can do a lot more to, 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 to see every public park court as a way into the game to people that will eventually, you know, sort of make, make, uh, make tennis one of the uh, top sports in Britain. Yeah. And though throughout the book, you're very critical of the, the gentleman amateur bubble that is kind mm-hmm. of, lasted for way too long until 1967. Um, I sense you're a little bit ambivalent about the scale of professionalism. Is, is that right? Yes. I, I think, I, I, think um, I, well, I can understand where the gentleman amateur model happened, really. I think the, the, the problem with it is it got confused with, with people playing for free or supposedly playing for free. And so that produced that kind of shamateurism in which it was, everything was swept under the carpet. But I think a lot of the ethos 
of that kind of style of play, the British style as it's terms, um, in which, um, you know, you're, you're meant to play almost without effort. And uh, your, the emphasis was on stylish shots as opposed to kind of winning or so. Um, I think a lot of that is actually, you know, really nice about British tennis. And I certainly will want to keep it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of professionalism which the Americans have, which is, you know, exemplified by Brad Gilbert's kind of win ugly or so, which I never thought did tennis a great deal of service, really. I think I think the British were far better to kind of lose kind of admirably rather than win ugly. And in some ways, when you, you know, when you're at grassroots level playing tennis, in some ways the kind of the attitude of playing because you enjoy playing and not playing because you want to win, um, I think is, is something that tennis is, uh, is very good at, really. Um, and, um, you know, so, so I think my ambivalence is still there, really. <laughs> You mentioned the. the it probably tennis. applies to me because I don't win very often. You see, <laughs> I have to. I have to develop a philosophy which says, "Oh, well, you know, winning doesn't matter. Yeah. How you play the game that matters." No, I yeah, I agree. I'm probably a proponent of that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the tennis tax that was proposed in the in the mid '80s as well. Now, it's fascinating what's happened recently. There was something proposed that was very similar, yes. um, and Dominic Team famously or infamously came out and said I, I don't want to pay for people who don't work hard towards the bottom of the game um, and uh, occasionally you get kind of examples because uh, in an odd way he also sort of um, you know was going on about how he would never move to places like Monte Carlo or so and he's quite happy to pay uh, uh, his 50% tax because he loves living in Austria or so so you know it's contradictory but these are these are often young men and women that really they don't think a great deal uh, about uh, about things. You know, they're great tennis players, but they haven't had much, you know, chance to reflect on on, on things. It's only you know when you get into your thirties, I think, uh, and you see the see the thoughts that Federer and people like that have. They're very you know sophisticated kind of uh, 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 thinkers about sport, really. So I'm not entirely sure that not entirely too much worried about what Dominic thinks. <laughs> but I mean, it's clearly that they're wrong, though, aren't they? I mean, you know, there are probably you know, a thousand you know, professional players that have a chance of kind of making it um, you know, in their lives. And it's not the one, you know, sure, you always see um, the ones that are very stuck to it and dedicated to it and they make their way through. But you forget about all the others that have not made it along the way um, and not been able to. Um, and the professional game really needs that thousand players playing kind of regularly and, and earning a reasonable living out of it. And once you get past, you know, 400, 500, it's, it's, uh, it's really a pretty shoddy existence. And it's difficult, a difficult kind of time. And these are very talented players, absolutely. They're slogging around for very little money at all because uh, the pyramid is very steep in tennis. That's not unusual, you know, in creative things. It's true of writers as well. There are lots of us writers vlogging away, earning not very much money, and then it runs up the top, they're earning massive amounts. Um, but I think with tennis, it's so, they're, they're so, you know, the top players are so much dependent on that structure going down for the, the first thousand or two thousand players. And I can't see the logic of them not at least developing a fund 
that kind of uh, allows kind of uh, people to you know sort of get grants you know when they're when they're on the circuit and not able to to you know uh, make it or so. And I think Federer and Djokovic um, uh, and Nadal have proposed this. I think and I think that does you know I think that's a really kind of positive step you know, because they do earn large amounts of money and even even giving a, a, a few thousand to to funds that allow. A young younger players, you know, when they're struggling, you know, seven, six, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred, kind of in the world or so, would be a great improvement for tennis, and it would, you know, re- reflect good on them as well, really. Yeah, there's an interesting case study in the book, isn't there, with Mike Davis, who's the the top British player in the fifties or sixties, isn't he? Um, it's true, he was, yeah, 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 from Wales, yeah, he, yeah. He Eventually, gets picked up by Jack Kramer's professional club, <laughs> yes. but. Yeah, it's a similar. I mean, it's a similar, like you say, similar existence right now of kind of living on the road and living living by by your means and just just really living week by week for a lot of players on the tour. And I hope maybe one side effect of of there being no official tour right now is that we're having these domestic events in Britain. Yes. They're being yeah. broadcast on the BBC and showing the depth of talent that is down yes. you know, 800 in the world. No, 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 it's true. And um, I mean, you could, you, could, you could imagine a voluntary tax of the top players, um, you know, sort of um, uh, subsidising kind of a lot of, a lot of that kind of, a lot of the, a lot of the players. Because it's actually, the problem is that the people that, 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 that kind of stop playing are not necessarily the kind of worst players, but they're often players that are more inclined to you know, have a, 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 you know, other interests or so, uh, and are not sort of, you know, often more stylish players, really. Uh, they're not, you know, the ones that keep going, the ones that, that tennis is the only thing in their lives, and they'll kind of carry on playing a particular kind of tennis that, ensures they win all the time and they're really you know talented people just 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 say well i'm just going to go off and do something else and so you're losing that kind of style of players so i think the so the, I, I think that you know i think jack kramer um suggested a tax in the 1980s and it was voted <laughs> down but i think some kind of you know, voluntary tax on the players would be a very nice thing really mm. uh, and could and could make all the difference and could keep some of the stylish players uh, that just need a few more years to really you know, hone their play. Uh, they could keep them in the game and that would be good for tennis. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think is tennis's uh, people's future, if you like? This is, you wrote the people's history. What, what, what mm-hmm. do you want to see for the next 20 years or so? I don't know really. It's an interesting question. I haven't asked that, that before. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm always an optimist, so I, I I think the kind of it is such a good sport, tennis, and it's such an open sport. And what I think we haven't touched on very much, it's also a sport you can play all your life, which is not very, which is not true of kind of most sports, really. Um, you can keep going. I think I interviewed somebody who was 92 sort of playing, and there's still Wimbledon Championships, um, you know, the British Championships. I think of. I think over 85s, there's certainly an over 85, and I think there might even be an over 90 now. Um, so, you know, it's a sport you can keep, you can keep playing, and, and as I said, men and women can keep playing, and people of all different classes can really play, and even people with disabilities also can, can increasingly play. Not So it's an incredibly inclusive sport on that respect. Um, and I like the sense that tennis is going to carry on kind of bringing more and more people into the game, more and more kinds of people that, that don't think, 
you know, sport is for them, really, because tennis has always been good at getting out the people that, um, you know, were felt excluded from other sports, particularly for for boys. It was always the boys that kind of didn't particularly want to, you know, get up on cold mornings and run around the football field and or kind of face up to a hard cricket ball <laughs> or kind of or a rugby scrum. It was always the less athletic boys that played tennis. And I think that's actually a really good thing about tennis, you know, that it's given that we all know that's sport uh, uh, and physical exercise is so important for us. Actually, tennis can hoover up the kind of uh, non-athletic kind of uh, 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 people and give them a game that they can play without feeling that they have to be, you know, particularly, uh, you know, sort of uh, 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 big or forceful or, or, or sporting or so. And what next for you, David, in, in tennis and in life? Well, in tennis, I've given up. I think um, one of the things I thought I might do as I kind of reached 60 was I thought I might have a chance of um, playing at a county level for the veterans. Um, I just missed it when I was a kind of junior. I was just sort of in the county squad, but I wasn't quite good enough to to play at, at full county level as a junior. And I thought, well, I get to 60 now, you know, I've got more of a chance. But... <laughs> Finn, I mean, what happened was, of course, all the county guys playing at 60, they've been playing at county level all their lives, junior and 20 <laughs> And it was even more competitive in the 60s because they'd all, you know, often given up work and were virtually playing full-time. When you get to county level or just below county level, it's a full-time activity. <laughs> and uh, I think I've resigned to the fact that I'll always be a good club player and that's not so a bad thing to be. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. In tennis. Um, but I'm not sure I'm going to write anything more about tennis. I think I've, I've, I don't think I've got anything more to say now. So I hope I'll leave it to other people, I think. Uh, <laughs> things. But it'd be interesting to see um, people listening, what they think of my... Um, people's history of tennis if they can get the chance to read it i'm always interested in hearing from people who have read the book and have got disagreements with us and you know want to kind of you know sort of take it up with me yeah well what you have written about tennis has been immensely enjoyable so thank you very thank much you, thank you very much david for joining us today and yeah i should say that uh, people's history of tennis is available from pluto press and all good bookshops as well um thanks yes. a lot david thank you lovely talk to you really enjoy it 